what is coming up for me when I am meeting with a client? Am I actually working on their goals, on, on the progress, the healing that they want to make? Or is it my own agenda that is coming up here? And because things tend to be so layered, I think that it's also healthy to check in. Is my client really showing me their own agenda or are they being conditioned by the system they grew up in? Hello, everyone. This is Riva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. It's spring. As I'm recording this, it's a sunny day in Portland, Oregon, and I am back on my bullshit here at the podcast. Thank you all so much for being here and listening and all the emails and feedback I received from you over the winter, over my break. I keep telling you, each person who reaches out to me, that it feels good to know that I'm not just shouting into the void, and it really does. I'm excited for what I have coming up for you this season. We're going to continue with our project of divesting from the image of ourselves as the good therapist and getting real about what it's like to do this work and what it's like to do this work at this particular moment in the unfolding of history. As I've continued to keep tabs on the state of our field over the last few months, both its public face and what's happening behind the scenes, I have become even more convinced that therapists and therapy are in a significantly transitional moment. One of those moments where it's not apparent yet what it is that we are transitioning to. It's just clear that we're not going back to where we were before. And wherever it is we are now, we can't stay here. Therapists are leaving the field in droves. I hear more therapists talking about considering closing their practices and getting out of the work now than I have ever before. At the same time, for most of the people I know who are looking for a therapist, it takes months to find one, if they're lucky. We have new therapists graduating and being afraid to start working with clients in a way that feels pretty different than the -the run-of-the-mill new career anxiety that I and my cohort of therapists had when we graduated into the field 10 or more years ago. Community mental health still doesn't pay jack shit, even as the cost of living continues to rise exponentially. So we still have young clinicians being told that they didn't get into this work for the money, while they allot a huge portion of each meager paycheck to pay down their massive student loan debt, and they make so little income that their kids qualify for Medicaid. Thirteen years ago, when the Affordable Care Act passed, everyone celebrated mental health parity. But now we've entered a time where the increased demand on insurance companies to actually pay out people's mental health benefits means that those companies have become increasingly aggressive about audits and clawbacks and policing therapists' clinical decision-making. And this includes Medicaid, by the way. They're doing the exact same stuff, in case you had any illusions about the beneficence of state-sponsored health care. They also don't want to pay. A desire to avoid the many years-long educational path, massive financial burdens, and the specter of regulatory oversight that constrain our experience as therapists has led to the emergence of a cottage industry of trauma coaches and mental health coaches and abuse recovery coaches. And while theoretically I don't have a problem with that, we are now seeing a concurrent increase in therapy clients who have washed out of mental health coaching because the mental health coach couldn't handle their mental health issues. We're still in the midst of what I call an oversimplification crisis, where mental health information and misinformation and information distortion is being disseminated at lightning speed via Instagram and TikTok, where a lot of therapists are out there participating in dumbing down the public's perception of what trauma and mental health and therapy even are. Although hearteningly, I think we are also seeing an increasing backlash against this kind of oversimplification. And of course, all this is happening against the backdrop of the crumbling concrete of our social and economic system as a whole, including a broader healthcare system stretched to its breaking point, a social safety net that 
barely exists, the rollback of reproductive health care rights, legislative attacks on queer and trans kids and adults, what have become your ordinary average everyday mass shootings, and a toxic spillover from a train derailment here and there. I list all that stuff there not with the intention of demoralizing you by reminding you of some of the many horrors in the world, but rather to remind you that there is a reason why you are tired and overwhelmed. And it's not just because your kids have brought home 10 colds from daycare so far this season or because you just paid $7 for a carton of eggs again. It is that. And it's also that our work, as we were taught it, and as it has been packaged thus far, was not made for these times. And if sometimes it feels like it's all coming apart, it's because it is. But I believe in this work. And I believe in the capacity of the people who are called to this work to be adaptive, flexible, and responsive to the conditions, professional and otherwise, that we are now facing. In the final episode of my last season, Therapists as Makers of Culture, I asked you to think about what kind of professional culture you want to leave behind for the next generation, the next generation of therapists and the next generation of clients who will be our children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, beloved young ones who will be shepherding the world along when we are not here. And though I often despair of the world, you know, because of all the things I just listed, when things start to come apart, it does give us the opportunity, with a little luck and intention and skill, to change something important about the structures of how things have been. And as we seem to be in this long moment of transition away from what has been and towards something we can't quite predict yet, we have the opportunity to start laying the foundations of that different, hopefully better, culture of therapy that we'd like to leave behind for whoever comes next. One of my answers to the kind of professional culture I want to leave behind that I shared last episode was that I want to make a professional culture where we challenge ourselves and each other to stretch our capacities to hold complexity. And the conversation I'm sharing with you today with Silvana Espinoza-Lau really serves that purpose. Silvana is a therapist and clinical supervisor who also runs Decolonize Your Practice, a program for mental health clinicians seeking to incorporate anti-oppressive, social justice-oriented, and liberatory values in their practices. The complexities that you are going to hear Silvana and I stretching to hold in this conversation are around the topic of where we're actually trying to go with a client when we embark on this journey of therapy with them. And it is a journey. Therapy is supposed to take the client somewhere. So where are we going? And how do we know when we've gotten there or even gotten close? The simple answer is that we set goals and we create a metric for measuring our distance towards those goals and we track that and bam. But of course, we are not doing simple answers here today. One of the key takeaways I think that you're going to find in my conversation with Silvana is the importance of paying attention to all the different agendas that are in the room when we are trying to establish a sense of direction with our clients, aka goal setting. There's the agenda of the client and all the cultures and subcultures of which they are a part that have an interest in people turning out a certain way. There's the agendas of our clients, friends, and families, and all the cultures and subcultures of which they are a part. There's our agendas, the therapist's agenda, and all the cultures and subcultures of which we are a part. There's the agenda of the organizations we work for if we work for an organization. There's the agenda of the medical system, of insurance companies. That's a lot to sift through as we sit down with a client and hear for the first time about how they want to say, reduce their anxiety. So how do we sift through that sea of overlapping, conflicting, sometimes competing agendas to find a sense of direction with our clients? Silvana and I discuss that and how we use connection and curiosity as our guideposts as we navigate this part of the process that is so often so much more complicated than it initially seems. 
Give it a listen and then come back next episode where I'm going to do a deep dive into some of what came up in this conversation with Silvana and how we wend our way through this wilderness with our clients to find a sense of direction and really get somewhere. Hi, Silvana. I'm so excited to have you on. Hi, Riva. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, we are here to talk about uh, the complexity and the problems with the idea of therapeutic goal setting and the idea of therapeutic progress. Um, and so I think it would be helpful to start with just sharing, like, what do you see as like the most common or like the dominant paradigm around the idea of how as therapists, we should approach, you know, setting goals, um, measuring progress, etc. Um, with our clients? I think that First of all, what I hear the most, and this is adjacent to goal setting, is this fear of working with insurance companies, especially if you are in private practice, right? And that has to do with goal setting. Uh, so I will go back to that, but that's like my mental note to not forget to to go back to that later. Um, I think it all depends on... Your, on several factors on on the professional systems that you have developed in that you have you know growth uh, uh, grown in. Um, I think it depends on where you went to school. Uh, my graduate program was I felt it was very anti community mental health. Um, I know that other programs are very CBT focused or very focused on private practice or very focused on this or other style. So I think it depends on that. I think it depends on where you're doing your internship, the messages that you start to receive as you develop your professional identity. I think it depends on where you're working at. I come from community mental health, so it was instilled in me this idea of goals have to be measurable and they have to be attainable and they have to be time-based and all these other things. And you will have an insurance audit every year and you have to complete your notes in this way. You know, it was this set of expectations. So it, it depends on the supervisors that you're working with. It feels like kind of like as we come to this world and we have a set of caregivers, hopefully, that are taking care of us and we learn from them values and habits and ways of interacting with the world as we are developing that professional identity, those care professional caregivers are also going to instill in us those values that they have. And then when we grow on, or when we become, to follow this analogy, a professional teenager or a young adult is when we start to think, hold on a second, is this how I want to do things or do I want to do them in a different way? Um, so my hope is that most clinicians can realize or have realized that um, the way that we are taught therapy, psychology, mental health can be so different from the way that we actually want to offer that to our clients, the way that we want to be in service uh, to our community. So I think that that's my, what should I call it, my uh, very vague <laughs> first part of answer to your question. I, yeah, I mean, I think what you're speaking to, right, is like there's so many of these different inputs. Like there's what we come with, like the vision that we come with as we like make the choice to get into this field, like the idea and sort of the the ideals that we come in with about like this is how I want to help people and this is what it's going to look like. And then there's all these various inputs that change so much based on like, I mean, even just what program you happen to get into if you're, you know, I mean, I know for me, like I was, I knew I didn't want to leave Portland, right? So I was like, limited by what was available here, as opposed to, you know, like, if I was, you know, living 3000 miles away in New York City, very different offerings from, you know, what would be available. And so, um, so then that has the impact and then your supervisors and then whether you, you know, like here in Oregon, people sometimes go straight to private practice. So whether you go straight to private practice or not, whether you work with insurance and then the impact of the fact that we're all working within an increasingly medicalized yes. DSM based system having to justify, you know, many people having to justify 
the expensive therapy to insurance companies by using, you know, a certain kind of approach to um, measuring progress. And so all these different inputs and how do they even how do they even go together? How do people even weave that together? What do they choose to discard? It's it's like even just right off the bat, a very complex um a very complex thing with lots of strong opinions kind of across the board about how we should, you know, quote unquote, should be doing things. Exactly. Yes. And I would add, I believe that it's a very oppressive system. You know, this medicalized system that we are operating, that we're navigating, I I think it's very oppressive. And I I think uh, if I am understanding you correctly, um, I am not, or I wouldn't criticize a clinician who's taking insurance who serve in people who need their insurance or a clinician who is private pay, who who doesn't take insurance. But I do believe, and I do believe that for the clinician who's taking insurance, they have to subject themselves to all these rules and expectations from insurance companies. Um, I don't get to determine if my client meets medical necessity. I need to prove to you, insurance company, if my client meets medical necessity. So why did I go to school? Why did I accrue all these hours? Right. <laughs> like, what was that about then? If you are the one telling me if my if I can see my client or not, uh, and for clinicians who are private pay who don't take insurance, well, there's a board and there's you know the ethics and there are state rules. Um, I cannot see you if you uh, leave the state or I need to jump through all the hoops of that other board to make sure that I can see you because then what is this punitive system going to do to me, right? right? Because I am seeing someone outside my jurisdiction. So it's, it's, I think it's a very oppressive system. Yes, it's a medical model. Maybe it works for some, it works for some, but I think it's very, very oppressive, um, and we are trying to provide the best care possible to our clients within this very, very oppressive system. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm really curious about for you, like your experience in community mental health of having to, you know, what I hear a lot, um, my community mental health experience was a little bit different because it was crisis. So we weren't writing, you know, treatment plans, which was, you know, for me, like hugely, it was, it felt like a perk in a lot of ways where I don't feel like I have to kind of compress what I'm trying to do right into this treatment plan and, and, you know, the smart goals and, and what have you. But I, I hear so much from people who, um, do work with, you know, ongoing outpatient, um, in community mental health of that sense of like, either I'm trying to translate this like dynamic, you know, expansive work that I'm doing into these very tiny, this tiny language to to justify it. Or, you know, I also hear from people like that having to do that gets in the way of the work itself often. And so I'm I'm really curious to hear just what your experience with that was. Yeah. Yeah. I think, oh, I need to take a deep breath. <laughs> it was a very, it was a very complex experience. That's, that's how I can, I say it in a nutshell. Uh, it, it was a very layered experience. Um, it was very humbling in the sense that uh, working in community mental health, you are usually working with people who tend to be underserved, marginalized, unseen, who wouldn't get care anywhere else, right? Right. Uh, people who are usually, well, here in Oregon, it's OHP, uh, I believe it's Medicaid, right? So I was, it was amazing to work with uh, people uh, who are houseless, people who are veterans, um, people, you know, so-called undocumented uh, who wouldn't be able to access care elsewhere um, or people uh, from low socioeconomic status. Um, so it was amazing to serve that population in the sense that it made me see all my privileges. Uh, you know, even as a brown immigrant, of course, I am intersectional. And of course, I also have privileges. Um, so, so on that sense, it was an amazing experience of being able to help people in a people that I wouldn't thought I would have helped and to help them in ways, even though it was community mental health and we were supposed to, you know, follow all these OHP rules Sometimes it was very case management based and sometimes you cannot use CBT. It's not your client's fault if they don't have the language to use something like CBT or any other evidence based approach for that matter. 
uh, I was lucky enough to have to pay for my own supervision, have an external supervisor who would tell me, well, can you translate, can you adjust these things to what this person is needing? And that was very useful. And that same person would tell me things like, I, I, I was a, a translator and interpreter in a prior life. So uh, <laughs> he would say things like, can you transfer that experience, those skills to this? So do you think that that thing that you just did with your client is a way of practicing uh, communication skills or practice, you know, assert being more assertive? Did they do that twice this week as opposed to once, you know, uh -huh. last week? <laughs> so I found my workaround to use my model, the model that I like, or back then it was, you know, a more psychodynamic IFS ego state model uh, with a lot of liberation psychology and to use it with a population that is supposed to have goals of things that they do twice a week um, for the next six months or that they would reduce by 30% in the next year, right? Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> so I was lucky <laughs> enough to have good external support. However, my personal experience was that of being between a, uh, a rock and a hard place. I did not experience a place with embodied DEI practices, to use that term, which I guess it's more known than liberation, decolonization, or social justice values. Um, I did not have support as a Spanish-speaking therapist. I did not have, and I'll just say this, I did not have any special, you know, extra bonus for speaking Spanish, for bringing that knowledge, for explaining to a psychiatrist that a Latinx woman is not uh, borderline, to explain that there's a whole context to somebody's experience and somebody's symptoms, right? Right. And yeah. to experience the microaggressions that some of us experience as we go through that process and feel like we're not supported by our supervisors, by our coworkers, or by other people there. So it puts you in this position of, I want to help these people. I want to help this population. And maybe there's not that many of us. And you can take my, my uh, marginalized identities and just use any other marginalized identities, right? I am the only or one of the few clinicians with these identities. These people feel like I can understand them or they feel seen by me or they don't have to explain themselves with me so i am helping them but i don't have m m but my agency doesn't have my back so how am i supposed to do this work right with a caseload of 70 80 90 people uh and i need to see i don't know six or seven people a day uh and the hope is that someone will cancel someone will no show so that's when you get to do your notes um so at least the system that I experienced was very, very oppressive. And I, to this day, I am so surprised at the fact that it's considered trauma-informed when it only considers the trauma of the client, but it doesn't consider how it is traumatizing the provider or the clinician who's trying to help the client. Absolutely. Oh, God. I mean, yes. Don't. Yeah. If that's a whole I could just talk about that ad nauseum because I think, yes, that's so absolutely right. Like the expectation that somehow people are going to be like healing the trauma of like, like you said, like a 70 client caseload somehow, like even if you do have support, it's just the numbers of time and energy do not add up to being able to do that. But then like, like with in the system as traumatizing as it is as much moral injury as clinicians experience and as much like direct oppression as clinicians experience and exploitation um within that the mental health agency system the idea that like yes that that somehow um that's acceptable to call that a trauma informed a trauma informed system is i mean it's mind boggling it's so um it's so off base one of the things you said uh, just now um, really piqued my interest around like you gave that example of like, tr you know, doing some of that like cultural translation, like of being like, no, like this is not we're not looking at a borderline personality disorder 
diagnosis here, you're missing some like important cultural elements. And I think that, you know, to me, that brings up that question of like, um, when we are thinking about this, um, you know, even whether it's, um, community mental health, private practice, whatever, the impact of some of those like big cultural norms and big cultural agendas on the lens that we view our clients through and how, uh, how that can skew or shape the direction that we're trying to like supposedly make progress in. And so I'm just curious about, yeah, if you have some thoughts about, um, about, yeah, how that those, those big cultural scripts and biases and agendas interact with this idea of making progress, this idea of like where we're going in therapy with somebody. Yeah. I mean, we're all biased, right? And we all have our own agendas, (laughs) whether we want to admit it or not. Um, I usually say uh, in, in, in my trainings, I, I this comes or whenever I am in front of people, you know, I am going to speak with the bias of my own experience. I am a brown immigrant, Latinx, queer, and that's how I have known the world. I cannot relate to the world in a different way. And my experiences come with that, with that bias, right? So I think it's very important and very healthy to admit that we have those biases and that we have those agendas. I think that what's very inappropriate is not to realize that we have them or to impose them on someone else, right? Um, especially when we're talking about a client, right? The idea is to do no harm. Uh, I think that, I, I would hope that we are all independently of our stage of professional development, I would hope that we all clinicians are part of some sort of, some form of supervision, uh, peer consultation group, consultation supervision. We are doing something to go through that experience of I am being witnessed in my process as a clinician. Somebody's reflecting back to me. I am hearing someone reflecting back to me. So I am really processing these ideas that I have and these thoughts and and impulses that I have with this person or with this case or with this experience or my own experiences, right? What is coming up for me when I am meeting with a client? Am I actually working on their goals, on the progress, the healing that they want to make? Or is it my own agenda that is coming up here? And because things tend to be so layered, I think that it's also healthy to check in. Is my client really showing me their own agenda or are they being conditioned by the system in which they grew up in, right? Mm -hmm. When a client tells me, well, I am feeling depressed and I want to feel happy. My first, you know, to give you a simple example, but my first question is, hmm, what do you mean by you want to be happy? And is this a message that you have heard or that you have seen in the media, right? This idea of well-being and happiness that is so, so toxic, in my opinion. Yes, Um, yes. You know, but maybe that's my client's actual goal. That's what they want. So it's about unpacking and really understanding if, you know, what are the agendas in, in this room, in this meeting? Is it actually my client's agenda? Is it my agenda? Is it a bigger cultural agenda? Is it the pushback from the oppressive systems that we live in that is, you know, creeping into this session between these two individuals? So I, I do believe that those are the things that we should keep in mind. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I think that's so important what you're saying to look at those multiple layers. Um, because I think, right, like the 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 sort of medical, you know, basic medical model, right? It's like, sure, of course, like be less depressed, be happier, you know, reduce uh the person's Beck depression inventory uh score, you know, like look at it through this, you know, highly simplistic lens. Um and I think, uh, and, and you know, far be it for me to say that somebody shouldn't want to be happy, yeah. but I think like, it's absolutely true that that's actually like, we're looking at a cultural 
imperative that we have in American culture is that we are supposed to like it's literally in the Declaration of Independence. Like we are supposed to be happy, like actively happy and no the pressure. pressure. Yeah, right. I know. No big deal. <laughs> Just like go about your life with a like a slightly elevated mood at all time. Like all it's time. not a realistic, you know, way to go about life and the pressure to like perform happiness and then to try to live up to what everybody else looks like and is posting on Instagram. I mean, I think that is it's we are at a point in American culture where that's perhaps the most toxic it ever has been simply because it's like being beamed into our eyeballs from social media constantly. Um, I think it is so important to to unpack that with people um, versus just like agreeing that that is you know, not taking a deeper look at that goal and just saying like, okay, you know, we're going to reduce depressive symptoms. You know, I think it's like so common that people have so many great reasons to feel really depressed. And that doesn't mean I'm not, it's not like, okay, so we just leave it at that, but, but not to explore the circumstances, like justifications that are very real for, you know, how someone is showing up. Um, versus just trying to change their thoughts or whatever, you know, version of it it is. Seems like such a, a missed opportunity to me. Completely, completely. And then happiness will look completely, to follow this example, happiness will look completely different to a person with more privilege than, you know, to a person with less privilege. How can I discuss the concept of happiness with a client who's a person of color, who's a woman, maybe disabled, uh, maybe neurodivergent? Um, you know, during the last three years when they were supposed to stay at home and if they lived in a city where, you know, uh, people recall that BLM was a thing, it never went away, right, for some of us. But, you know, there were the protests uh, with good reason. You know, there's an extra layer of vicarious trauma because my clients were seeing people like them being her harmed for no reason, uh, plus all of the other circumstances. And, okay, let's work on your well-being, and that's going to look completely different than working on somebody else's well-being given the resources that they have, right? Time, energy, and, and money. Uh, so yeah, it's a very layered situation. Again, I don't think, I, I, I'm actually very biased, I was going to say. I bet the back inventory is useful for some things, but I'll just say it, I'm very biased. I don't like it. I, I don't like this idea of progress, you know, and, and, and progress being measurable. I am saying this very humbly, but I can help a client reduce their score in a PHQ-9 because I have learned what the coping skills are. We all learn them in school, learn them in school, right? And in our internships, but really helping them heal. I think that that's a completely different story. Helping them see what's happening around them if they haven't had the chance or the time or the resources to look what's happening around them. I think that's a completely different story. And I think that that can provide our clients with a more wholesome way of healing um, that has nothing to do with being a Band-Aid approach, right? It's really like an inside-out type of approach. I think that sometimes when people get, you know, nervous about the idea of not using these like quantified measures, right? Like, because I sometimes think that that's why people turn to that stuff is like, there's an anxiety about the ambiguity of all of this. And so it's like, well, okay, if I can reduce their depression scores, if I can reduce their anxiety or their PTSD or their, you know, I always think subjective units of distress is a hilarious, um, like the idea that we have created a supposedly quantified measure that contains the word subjective. I'm like, that should, that should tell you inherently that it's not really actually a quantified measure, but I can reduce their suds or whatever. There's a, there's a desire to hold on to those things because it gets, it, it gives people the illusion that they're out of this like gray area and the complexity of, of and ambiguity of all this. Um, and so I wonder, I'm curious, like, you know, what would you say to a therapist who, says like, well, if I don't have these things, how do I know that we're getting anywhere? How do I know that we're, I'm actually helping somebody? Yeah. Yeah. Th that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I think that I have been there myself. Um, 
because it is amazing to see that your client no longer scores a 13 on the PHQ-9 or, you know, what PCL-5 and, you know, that the score has diminished. Uh, because, yes, that we learned uh, indicates that the client is improving, right? Right. I wouldn't blame any therapist for doing that. I think that it's very safe to do that. I think that that's what we were taught, right? To me, it's kind of like telling you, no, you know, I I'm going to tell you that the sky is not blue after you have learned that the sky is blue and everybody around you told you that the sky is blue and they agreed. So it's like, what are you talking about? What are you telling me? So um, <laughs> I wouldn't criticize anyone, any clinicians. I, I think it's okay if you want to do that by all means. And I think that it also depends on the own clinician's resources, right? Their time, their energy, and their money. Again, like what if this is all I can do for now? What if I am working a nine to five and this is, um, you know, it, it includes supervision. So this is what I need to do. I don't blame you if, if that's your reality, right? Um, what if I just started private practice and I have so many other stuff to think of, taxes and, you know, setting my business. So this gives me some sense of certainty. The fact that my clients are decreasing their depression by 30%, et cetera, et cetera. And when you are ready and when you have the resources, can we think of and learning some of the things that we have learned? Can we think of questioning some of the things that we have learned? All of us will die unlearning. <laughs> And, you yes. know, yes. I don't yes. think that we There's ever no, arrive. We're never done. But, yeah. Right. We're never done. We will never be woke enough. Mm -hmm. So maybe some of us are farther down the road, but I'm pretty sure that there are lots of clinicians that are way farther down the road than myself. Right. And I think that we just need to support those other clinicians and to start showing them there are other ways in which you can help your clients. And it is okay if you want to deviate from this norm that you learn, right? I guess if I compare this to identities, it's so comfy and so nice to have a privileged identity because then the world is kind of like, like me and it approves of me, right? Uh, if I have marginalized identities, I feel like I need to work harder to be accepted in this world. So, you know, following that same analogy, if I am going to use models or systems that were not taught or that not everybody approves of, am I being a good therapist? Am I doing therapy the right way? Am I actually helping my client? I can see how we can start doubting ourselves. Um, so I think it's a matter of unlearning little by little, depending on the resources that we have in the moment, right? Um, yeah, but I would encourage all therapists to always stay out, out of their comfort zone and always try to unlearn as much as they can. So for you, as you left that hyper quantified model, um, you know, and moved back into what it sounds like was more congruent with your intuition and your, you know, how you initially came with a sense of like wanting to help people through this work. How do you like, how do you decide? How do you, um, you know, assess for yourself with your clients? How do you assess um, outside of that model that you're helping them? Yes. The foundation of what I do, which is, again, a mix of uh, Jungian psychodynamic with a lot of liberation psychology um, the foundation of that to me is connection. Um, there is a book that I always go back to, um, the pedagogy of the oppressed that has nothing to do with therapy per se, but it talks about that, right? It talks about the idea of it is the people who need to heal and it is the people who we need to listen to for the things that they need and because of the systems that they are living in. And this is how they have been oppressed. And this is how we help them. And this is how they succeed. Or this is how they become, you know, healthy. So what I do is to really be in connection with my clients, to really communicate uh, all the way. And it's kind of a reminder of where were you six months ago and where are you at now? what was happening for you a year ago and what is happening for you now. I think that for all of us, I include all of us, even therapists, 
it's so easy to lose sight of where we are at. And it's so easy to lose sight of, I am a better person than what I was five years ago or a year ago, or in the last year, this is how I have grown. Maybe I can measure it. I can make it quantifiable. But in conversation, if I have enough conversations with someone, if I am in relationship with someone and I can hear myself talking about all the things that I have done, I am going to be maybe surprised, or at least that has been the experience that I've had with clients. This, you know, oh, damn, right. Last year I was not doing this and now I am doing that. Or six months ago, I was not able to do this or now I am doing that. Um, it, it sounds very simple. It sounds very easy. But to me, it has to do with really knowing who is the person that you are with. What are the identities that that person holds? How is the system impacting the identities of that person? And to really ask with curiosity, not to uh, fill out a progress note, but with curiosity, human curiosity, how are you doing compared to how you were doing a year ago or even three months ago? How are you different than you know when we started therapy? To me, that is very helpful. Yeah, that sense of like, I think it is sometimes very, like humans, I think inherently have that adaptability where we kind of get used to however it is right now. And there is sometimes like, it can be very helpful in or out of that therapeutic context to have the reminder to like reflect on the trajectory versus that sort of like easy to get into mindset of like, oh, how I am right now or how things are right now is how they've always been. I think it's interesting just that you have some of the psychodynamic background. I've been um, thinking and and talking with some colleagues a lot lately about um, the importance of like psychodynamics as the root of this field. And I think there, if you have some grounding in that way of looking at things, sometimes I think it's a bit it's a helpful grounding when you're thinking about all these conflicting agendas, right? Like you're th- like when when you're thinking about a client who's coming in with whatever suffering, whatever problems that there is is bringing them into the therapy office in the first place and they have this idea of how that problem should be solved, which if to me if that idea was right, it, they probably wouldn't need to be there, you know, they would have done the thing and gone on with life and and whatever but like they're here because something about there's something about all the pieces the way they're thinking about it the way they're approaching whatever the problem is that's not fitting together you know quite right you know and i think there's something to me about even if you're using whatever modality you're using to have that like psychodynamic grounding seems really important to me you know i'm thinking about just like i know when we were talking um Initially, before you uh, came on the show, one of the examples that I was giving about something I encounter in this realm of like that I work with a lot of moms of young children. And there's been quite a few articles about this. It's very topical right now about like mom rage. So I, I have a lot of moms coming in who they're presenting problem, right, is that they're irritable and and pissed off and snapping all the time and they're getting negative feedback or they're feeling guilty because it's showing up in their relationship with their kids, whatever. And inevitably, when I work with these moms i'm i'm seeing so much about their life circumstances where they're being so heavily impacted whether that's in their partnerships at work both you know by these like incredibly misogynistic patriarchal norms and being in, in filled with rage is a totally appropriate response to that and so um it, it's been interesting to hold those threads of like, I understand why you don't want to be going around crabby and snapping at everyone all the time and feeling angry. And at the same time, like, I don't want to collude with the system that says like, you should be a happy housewife and mom and just feel fine giving, 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 and never getting your own needs attended to, you know? And so, and I think to me having that a little bit of that psychodynamic grounding really helps with that because I'm like, okay, I can see what's on the surface here. And I can see that there's some, some motivation, some part of you that's knows and is, has the wisdom to be pushing back against the oppression that you're experiencing and, and, and navigating all those different pieces versus a more medicalized version of that, which is saying like, oh, your irritability, it's generalized anxiety and we need to 
you know, put a lid on that somehow. Yes, 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 yes. And it can be, you know, your psychodynamic background, call it what you want, the, the intuition that you have developed, your obs observational skills, the insight that, that now you have after, I don't know, 10 years, five years of, of being in, in, in practice. So call it what you want. But I think it's that versus, like you're saying, the medical model, right? Uh, mom's rage makes sense. I work with BIPOC individuals and the main issue tends to be imposter syndrome. I feel like I am not doing enough. I have not pleased my boss or my boss, my boss is displeased with me. And in the end, the conversation is about, hmm, are you not doing enough or are you having more obstacles and barriers than your more privileged counterparts, right? Right, right. So, and a higher standard imposed <laughs> for you to be able to receive recognition. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So of course you're going to feel like you're not enough. And of course you're going to feel depressed. Don't you think that your depression makes sense? Do I want to help you feel as depressed? Of course I do, but I also want to help you understand That's my agenda, I will admit. That's my bias, right? The oppress I want you to see the oppressive systems. And clients who come to me know that that's my bias. I will talk about oppression in therapy. But I want you to see that there are other reasons why you're not doing well. It's not just you. And usually it's not the individual. <laughs> usually it is the systems that we're living in um, that have not been designed for most of us. Uh, that have been the sign for people with more normative identities. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like what just the the way I'm not sure what the trajectory of this field is going to be because I think that the trend has been to continue down this path of medicalization, right? And of, you know, it's like I don't remember how long it's been since LPCs in Oregon, even, you know, it's like that wasn't considered like that was outside of the medical model for a while. And then it's been integrated into that, um, you know, with insurance and then with um, the Affordable Care Act and, and uh, you know, mental health parity, which is great on the surface of it, but continues to kind of compress what we're doing into that like DSM based model. And yet I see more and more people getting totally just burnt out and frustrated trying to operate within that um, and feeling these exact constraints that we're talking about of like this, this lens is not reflecting my experience and it's not reflecting the experience of the people that I work with to look through it this way or try to approach it this way um, or to try to measure progress by adjusting to, you know, somehow becoming diagnosis free or whatever the version, the version of it is. Exactly. I honestly hope, I am not encouraging anyone, it's my hope, I honestly hope that more clinicians, that more therapists um, rebel against that. Um, I know that some do. I, I hope that more uh, clinicians start to incorporate their own practices, um, whatever is congruent and appropriate with your cultural practices, with your lineage, if you want to call it that, with your spiritual practices, with your religion, with whatever has helped you heal. I would hope that that is something that you're also offering your clients, if it also makes sense culturally, right? I am not, I would never want for anyone to culturally appropriate something, right? Um, but if it's within your and your client's identities to bring something else that makes sense and that you know that can help people heal, why not bring it to session? I know that the medical model or in community mental health, we talk about, or they used to talk about, I said we, I'm no longer there. They used <laughs> to talk about multidisciplinary teams, right? It was me, a skills trainer, maybe a case manager, the psychiatrist or the nurse practitioner, maybe a housing specialist. So, so it sounded like this amazing team helping the client. And I am wondering, can I bring in as part of the, in private practice, as part of the treatment team, um, a priest if my client or, or a pastor, you know, if my client is religious, can I bring in the person that my client sees to for a palm reading or for tarot reading if that's important to my client? You know, so I am not doing that. I am not appropriating. I am 
I am staying within my lane and within my expertise, but I am bringing in these other experts. Maybe they don't have a license, maybe they don't have a board, but that doesn't make them any less of experts, you know, because that would be helpful to my client. Yeah, maybe it's not going to be measurable, but maybe it's going to help my client heal in a more wholesome way, right? So that is my hope for the mental health field. And what I am feeling very ambivalent about is that I have already seen one of these uh, practitioners um, talk about how spirituality should be part of, um, of therapy. And what makes me so angry is that that is a message that some of us have been trying to convey for years. People before me have been trying to convey for decades, spirituality should be a part of mental health. This person says in, in their blurb something like, uh, we tend to see spirituality as woo-woo, but it's not. It's a very important part of, of, of therapy. That is the message that people before me were trying to convey to their clients. Uh, but now that a, a, a white person is saying that, it's like, okay, all of a sudden, um, this big corporation that offers trainings will back this person so that they can, you know, uh, convey that message to more clinicians. So now it's fine because it's backed by, you know, an MD, white doctor, et cetera, et cetera. When that has been a thing in several communities for so long, Right. So spirituality. So anyway, so spirituality and so many other practices, I wish they were part of the multidisciplinary treatment team of our clients. Right. Not because we have to do that, but because maybe we can work with those individual, with those other specialists as well. Right. Have them sign a, a, a narrow eye. Yes. Comply with all your rules. But can you bring in all those other people that are helping your clients as well? Mm -hmm. That reminds me, what you're saying reminds me of a story uh, someone I worked with um, in crisis uh, told me about of like a client who was hearing voices and, you know, there was a whole process of them wanting to diagnose this person, the clinicians that were, you know, part of this uh, community mental health network, like wanting to diagnose them with like a psychotic disorder. And then with further investigation, it just turns out like this is actually like a culturally appropriate. This person's hearing the voices of their ancestors and what they really need is a, a, a person from within their culture to help them do to address that in a spiritual way. And that's what's helpful to them versus like you know, with the road for somebody who gets diagnosed with a psychotic disorder is medication and, you know, this whole thing, which would have been completely inappropriate for that client, you know? And I think, I think there's stuff like that happens all the time, like much more than anybody, you know, most people would realize that that's going on. I think sometimes um, one of the fears that people who haven't um, incorporated more of this kind of like, I mean, I think social justice is very buzzwordy now, but like the way I think of it is more like unpacking some of these cultural assumptions, right, in our work. So looking at things like the systemic oppression that our clients are experiencing, um, things like looking at just some of those very, you know, negatively impactful cultural norms, like what we were talking about earlier about the expectation that just people just go about life being happy all the time. You know, another one that I think about a lot that I, I find, you know, I noticed it's something that's impactful in my own life and also comes up a lot in the in the mindset of my clients. I think actually I find it especially among like white Americans, this belief, a really strong belief that if you do everything right, good things will happen. Um, and there's, you know, it's just been like just enough of that has played out, you know, in their like post, you know, sort of post-World War II, 20th century white life that like it seems possible that that's true, you know, and letting go of this idea that like something bad happening doesn't mean that you like that you didn't do all the right thing. Like they bet shit just happens, you know, that's actually very hard, right, for so many people to grasp and like internalize. And I think that it's very easy for many people not to see that as cultural, right? It's those the deep culture stuff that we think of as just like, that's just how life is. 
clinicians sometimes are afraid to unpack that or to look at that in a therapeutic context because I think the fear is sometimes like if we look at the cultural stuff that that it's so big, you can't just change it, right? You can't like you can't just go out and decide that it's going to be different. It's still in the water, it's in the air, it's it's part of our day-to-day existence that we have to contend with. And I think the fear is often like okay, if I bring it up, if we're talking about that, will we just collapse? Like, is it just, is it too big? You know, and so I, I, I'm curious about like how you, you know, what you would say or how you think about um, that differently. You know, I think to me, sometimes I think it can be really empowering to look at those stuff, you know, those th- kinds of things, but I'm curious about, yeah, just what your, your take on that piece is. I, I think that as clinicians need to do we all need to do our own internal work first, right? Uh, I believe that we need to look at our own identities, our own culture, how we feel about the identities that we hold. How am I feeling about my privileged identities? Are those making me feel shame and guilt because, oh my God, I can afford more things than, you know, my neighbor or uh, here I am an immigrant, but I'm also a citizen and how many people are not. So, so am I being consumed by what is my relationship to those privileged identities, but also what is my connection and my relationship to my marginalized identities, right? Am I still feeling rage because I'm a POC and look at all those white people, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, am I still fused to all of those feelings that make sense, that are valid, but how am I in connection, in relationship to those feelings? How am I? How are those making me act and behave, and interact with others? Right, especially my privileged identities. I think that we can get very stuck on. Oh my God! Oh my God! <laughs> uh, I want to help people, but I don't want to say the wrong thing. And and if I bring the cultural piece, so I think it's very important to be in touch with who we are first. Right. Um, if I can talk about another approach, uh, you know, so-called, I should have used so-called for all the, uh, uh, Western approaches, FYI, but act, so-called act, right? We know that it comes from contemplation and other Eastern practices, but for sake of, of brevity act, uh, you know, can I go inwards and can I see how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking about this and how does that make me feel? And can I make that feeling or that thought be just a passing thought or can I diffuse from it and just see it as a thing, as an experience that is happening for me, that it doesn't have to control me, right? And it's an experience that I will always have because some identities never change. If I was born a white person, that will never change. So maybe I will always feel this, oh my God, oh my God, right? I don't want to hurt hurt my client. Uh, So how can I learn to live with that so that it doesn't come in the session and it doesn't, you know, interrupt my session and so that I can finally talk to my clients so that I can understand that there's a gap also between my uh, identities and my clients' identities and that that gap is okay. I didn't make it be there. It is not my fault, but I can do something so that my client can live a life according, a, a decent life according to the identities that they have, right? It's a different thing to ask, hmm, how does it feel to be an immigrant than to ask to a client, I am really interested in your experience and I really want to know what are the things that you have been through because I want to help you. So can you tell me whatever you feel comfortable sharing with me, right? There's such a difference. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, what you're describing to me, I just, it really feels like that, like utilizing our curiosity, right. Of, of leaning into our curiosity. And I think, um, I think so often about curiosity as like an antidote to anxiety, you know, that if we're really getting curious about something, it kind of pushes the anxiety to the side. And I think that comes into this, this question of like, when we're bringing this cultural lens into the idea of, you know, doing therapy of helping somebody make progress of helping somebody heal within the context that we're in, Um, you know, getting curious about like, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? You know, and, and my, where I am in all of my various positions, what does that mean for my client? How, where are our overlaps? Where are the things that might be the same or different and how they might experience it? There's so much that's interesting there, you know, and, and I think to me, what we're kind of getting at you know, in that question I asked about like, well, 
what happens when you face this stuff and it feels so big and and distressing to you know to confront there's no easy answer of like what does it mean to heal in an uh, oppressive culture but we can get curious about what someone's answer might be and it's going to be to me it's definitely going to be a more robust answer a more honest answer if we're really looking at all the inputs versus we're just collapsing someone into a a diagnosis or a set of symptoms definitely definitely and again reminding you that i come to this conversation with my biases right i come from a culture of platicas translated to heart to heart conversations and i do believe in this idea of you know if i am with a client am i there with this person that i am supposed to help again <laughs> decrease their score in a phq9 or gad7 or am I here to connect? Because it's an intimate relationship, right? There's no physical stuff, but it's an intimate relationship. So am I here to connect from my heart to your heart? Not because I will understand all your identities, the ones that we don't share, but because I want to witness them and I want to hold them and I want to tell you it sucks that you live in a system that doesn't see you for who you are, right? And let's problem solve how you can get the resources, how you can get the community, how you can get the help that you need that those systems are not giving you, right? How can we uplift you in a way that your system is not? Um, so I think that's the important conversation that we can have with our clients. And is that measurable? I don't know. Maybe it's not. But, <laughs> you know, a month from now, if we ask them how you are doing six months from now, if they listen to themselves, maybe they will realize that there has been progress or there has been healing. Um, and, and I think that that is way more impactful. Uh, again, my bias. I think that that is way more impactful than... Um, you know, sitting in a room trying to be a good therapist um, and not unpacking culture as well. I think that is a great note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, I was going to say more and then I'm like, I think that's a perfect, I think that's a perfect note to end on. <laughs> um, thank you so much. I, this is just a really interesting generative conversation. I think a lot of important, a lot of important pieces here. I really appreciate um, you coming on and and bringing all of this rich stuff in. So Reva here again. I was slow on the uptake getting back on my game here for this season, and I forgot to ask Silvana about her A Therapist Can't Say That moment. But she was kind enough to send us a voice note so that we could share it with you. So here is Silvana again with her A Therapist Can't Say That moment. My therapist can't say that moment is actually a series of events or series of instances when I said at work variations of the phrase uh, therapy is political um, and imply that the mental health space is another space influenced by white supremacy. As I uh, gather more experience in the mental health space, I started to, to say that explicitly. Yeah, I, I uh, even I was even called uh, to HR by by saying things like that. Um, I think that in general, the response I got from people with from other clinicians or bosses with normative identities, you know, read white males with degrees and added privileges, was that uh, therapy was supposed to be a space where the therapist offers neutrality so that all the parts of of the client could be welcomed. Uh, and that we as therapists, um, we keep our own views to ourselves. I am not saying that this is black and white, that it's a yes or a no, that they were right and I was wrong or the other way around. Um, I know it's nuanced and I just can't do that. It is not that simple for me. Yes, all people deserve to go to therapy and I will not be neutral as a therapist of color when that neutrality harms me and when being neutral does not let me provide good treatment. Um, I can't say to a person of color that they need to work harder, for instance, right? I cannot say to a person of color that they need to work harder on their coping skills to overcome their symptoms when they see people like them being mistreated or worse, being killed. Um, 
I can't and I won't say to a clinician that therapy is not political when the reality is that the therapy space remains colonized and is oppressive to clients of marginalized identities um, for as long as we use um, these um, one-size-fits-all models of care. Uh, as long as we use standardized assessments um, and for as long as we use copy and paste treatment plans while pretending that our cultural competency trainings uh, bridge the cultural gap between us and our clients of marginalized identities. You can find Silvana Espinoza Lau and her program Decolonize Your Practice at seventhselfcounseling.com. Thank you for being here with us on A Therapist Can't Say That. If you haven't followed the show yet, wherever you listen to podcasts, please do so that you won't miss an episode. That's good for you. Good for me. It's a win-win. And it would also be a great help if you could rate and review the show. And of course, don't forget to recommend the show to your therapist friend who's thinking something and wondering, can a therapist say that? As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com. I always welcome your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course your, a therapist can't say that moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or by sending me a voice note to reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time. Bye.